Being uh, the Young Parents Community Group, um, this year uh, Brett has been taking over the one at Kingsgrove, I still lead the one at Bankstown, and so there's just a lot of young mums and dads uh, who are part of that group. And if I could just think of the one word that describes all of the parents, young parents, and whether you're part of that group or not, right, young mums and dads who just had kids in the last few years, the one word that immediately comes to mind when I think of them is the word tired. It's true, isn't it, right? It's the word tired. Because here's the thing, you don't know what tiredness is until you become a parent. And this kind of tiredness starts from the moment your kids are born. Each and every day, from the morning until bedtime, And even after they're in bed, this is what it can be like. No wonder you're so tired. Now, I wonder if you're feeling like that in life. And okay, for a moment, I was talking about the parents, but not just the young parents. Are you tired? Or more than tired, could you describe how you're feeling as weary? Yeah, you know the difference between tired and weary? Um, tired, you just need to rest and you can recharge. Weary, though, you sort of feel it in your soul, right? So here's the difference. Like if you're tired, it's like when you go to the gym, you do all your workout and then you're so tired you can't do any more, but then you rest and you can come back the next day or two days later. Weary, though, is like going to the gym when you have the flu, right? You can't even do one set. Are you tired are you weary? And I, and I guess the bigger question, if you're a follower of Jesus, I want to ask you this morning, are you spiritually tired? Are you spiritually weary? As I talk to people at our church, I get a sense that many of you are. I've come up with a, a list of diagnostic kind of questions or indications that maybe you're tired, maybe you're weary. Uh, have a look at them. You may be weary in your spiritual life if you can't remember the last time you felt genuine spiritual, sorry, biblical joy and spiritual delight. Or God's Word just doesn't seem very lively to your mind, your heart, your will. And then when you're with God's people, church, CG, you're easily offended. You're constantly annoyed at people. And if you're serving, you do ministry, well, it feels like a chore and you've lost the motivation to. And sin in your life, you kind of just give in pretty easily without much of a fight. And you hardly ever pray and worship in private when no one sees. And God may feel distant, but then you're not really even that bothered by it. I wonder if that's you. Take a good look at that list. That may not be every single one, but may, maybe it is overall how you're feeling, how you are. Well, if that's you, I want to say that Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 13 is actually written for you. And I get a feeling that's probably the majority of us. So, Let's pray and ask God to speak to us this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you've spoken through the writer of Hebrews by your Holy Spirit. 
this morning. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would speak these words afresh to us, especially those who are feeling tired and weary in life, but also especially our spiritual lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So there are three challenges in this passage for the weary Christian, and they are, one, keep running, two, look at Jesus, and three, endure as children. So let's go to the first point. Um, recap, we are in the final section of Hebrews, we're on the, uh, the, the final stretch. Um, it's shown us already, Hebrews, the bulk of Hebrews is how Jesus is greater than anyone or anything. Um, and then chapter 10 onwards, half of chapter, the second half of chapter 10 onwards to here, to the end, um, it'll apply it to the lives of Christians under great pressure. The original readers of the book of Hebrews were Christians under pressure to give up their faith. Um, last week we saw with Pastor Marshall's Hebrews 11, that great chapter of faith. You remember the hall of heroes of the faith, you know, everyone from Noah to Abraham to, you know, all the fathers of the faith. And with that in mind, we start chapter 12 with a therefore. So this is following on from there. So it says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Now, just because that's a big, long sentence, I'm going to break it down for you, and then hopefully this diagram will help. You'll see that the main challenge, okay, the main uh, encouragement is that one that's highlighted in the center, let us run with perseverance. But then you've got three ideas that hang off it, right? The first one is the why, the second and third is the how. So why should we run with perseverance? And then the next two, how are we to run with perseverance? Okay, so let's start with the main challenge. The main challenge is clear. It's keep running. Keep running with perseverance. So you feel like giving up? It's saying, don't give up. Um, you're tired. You're weary. Well, don't stop. Keep going. Push through. Endure. And you can see there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a metaphor, isn't it? The analogy is of running. And it's a very appropriate uh, analogy. And just, a, just a little bit of warning. Um, I'm going to use a lot of sporting illustrations today. I'm sorry if you're not into sports. It's also the NBA Finals. There's a couple of basketball ones in there for you, all right? But if you're not into sports illustrations, I'm sorry, it's in the Bible. So we're just going to have to go with it, all right? Um, what kind of race is it? Well, it's not a sprint. You might have heard before, the Christian race is not a sprint. It's a marathon. It's endurance. And here's the thing. It's not about winning. It's just about finishing, but finishing takes endurance. Now, I did a bit of a search. When it comes to endurance running races or races, there's probably nothing quite as brutal as what's called the Spartan death race. All right, there are a few different types of Spartan type events, obstacle courses, races. At the top, the very hardest is called the death race. It goes for 72 hours and the challenges are nonstop. You don't sleep. And it changes every year, the kind of challenges. And, and the contestants, they're not given any water. They're not given any food. And in fact, they have no idea what the challenges are until each challenge comes. And some of the crazy challenges they've done before are things like, you've got to climb under barbed wire for 60 kilometers. 60 kilometers. You've got to do 12 hours of burpees. I can't even do 12 burpees. You've got to do 12 hours hours of burpees and then just when you're completely exhausted mentally and physically they're going to get you to count out 500 pennies just to push your mind and your body you gotta to have to count out 500 pennies it's crazy isn't it and the aim 
of this endurance race is just to finish, right? Most people don't, okay? You can imagine. Most people do not even finish. Now, believe it or not, and I'm not exaggerating, but believe it or not, the Christian life is far more difficult than the Spartan death race. I'll tell you why it's more difficult. It's more difficult because it's longer. It's not 72 hours. It may be 72 years or more. It's a lifetime. And the stakes are much higher, all right? If you fail the Spartan death race, you're like, oh, oh well. The stakes of the Christian life is eternity. It's heaven or hell. And the dangers are far more subtle in the Christian race. And the dangers mostly work like slow poison. So you barely even notice it sometimes. And of course, the enemy against you is far more powerful. You're not just conquering yourself like in a death race. You're, you're trying to fight Satan. And he is powerful. And he wants you to fail. I've been a Christian for nearly 35 years. I've been a pastor for about 20 and I've seen so many followers of Jesus give up, people who are really close to me, and it's heartbreaking. So make no mistake, this is the toughest race you will ever do, being a follower of Jesus. And if you're weary, it's going to feel that much tougher. So, how? Right? How, 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 do we even, how do we do this? Well, firstly, remember, three things hang off the main challenge. The first is the motivation, the why. Why do we run with perseverance? Well, it's because it says there in verse 1, we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. That's the why. You're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. The image is uh, this running image, right? And you're surrounded by a stadium of spectators. That's the image there. And they're watching and they're cheering for you. Now, every professional athlete will tell you how important it is to have the crowds cheering for you, how that gives you a lift, how that gives you energy, how that gives you determination when you have nothing left. And here, the cloud of witnesses in context, of course, is referring to the, well, the chapter before. Remember Hebrews chapter 11, you've got the, the hall of faith, you've got the Noah and the Abraham and the Moses and the Rahab and the judges and the kings and the prophets, and they're cheering you on. Isn't that amazing? But because it's them, they're not just spectators, are they? It's not just that they look at us, but because of who these guys are and because of Hebrews 11, kind of holding them up as heroes of faith, it's not just that they look at us, it's actually we look at them. So I don't know if you know um, Bronny, Bronny James, uh, short for LeBron James Jr. Uh, Bronny is uh, LeBron's son. Uh, and he's playing college basketball. And you can imagine uh, when he plays college basketball, because in the crowd are going to be spectators, but they're not just going to be spectators and fans. I'm sure he's got a few. But his dad's going to be there. Like, imagine that. You're Bronny, you're playing, and your dad is there. And your dad is just not anyone, is he? Your dad is LeBron James, right? Arguably the greatest player of all time. Okay, so when Bronny... Imagine he's, he's playing a game and, he, and, and they're losing and he feels like giving up or he's cramping and he's finding it hard. And he looks at his dad, LeBron James, and he remembers that his dad's been doing this for 20 years at the top level in the NBA. And he remembers that his dad's overcome all of these obstacles and is now probably or possibly the GOAT, the greatest of all time. What does that do for Bronny when he looks up and his dad's up there in the grandstands cheering for him? You see, it's not just his dad's looking at him. He's looking at his dad. 
you might be weary in your race, but you need to know that you're not alone. I look around you, look ahead of you. You are not alone. I see the people on the grandstands cheering for you with eyes of faith. These are the people who've come before you. And we're not just talking about the people in Hebrews 11, the Old Testament figures, but every single Christian who's finished before you. They're in the stands, they're watching, they're cheering. And with their lives, they're witnessing. Now, if you want a great way of applying this to give you a pick-me-up, especially if you're feeling weary or tired, can I recommend read a Christian biography? Some of the best books out there. There's so many. If you need a recommendation, you know, I'm happy to give you a whole bunch, men and women, that you'll read. And it just sometimes that's the inspiration you need to keep going because you read about them. Recently, um, Pastor Tim Keller passed away. And just hearing all the tributes and all the things about his life, listening to this latest Undeceptions podcast about his life and his legacy, that, that does something for you when you listen, right? Read a biography. Listen to a biography. That's a really great way. Okay. Next one, from the why to the first how. So how can we run this race with perseverance and finish? Well, it says, throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. That's the first how. You throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Um, You need to know that ancient athletes used to run naked. In fact, um, they used to do athletics naked, and, and that's where we get the English word gymnasium from. It means naked, right? It comes from the Greek word naked. Um, now, obviously, we don't do that anymore, thankfully. But if you remember, in the 2000 Olympics, you had Kathy Freeman run the 400 meters in that bodysuit. Um, but the, the point is the same, whether you're running naked or in a bodysuit. It says you don't run with excess baggage, right? Because it, it creates drag, it creates weight, it's not aerodynamic. Well, it's the same with a Christian life. That's what it's saying here. You have to throw off anything, everything. But it's no, it's throw off everything that hinders and the sin that entangles. And I think it's talking about two separate but related things. Not just the bad things you need to throw off, the sin, but it may actually be good things. Did you know that there are actually good things in our lives can hinder us from running well as well? Back in 2011, I had the privilege of um, spending a few, maybe an hour or so with a group of people, and John Piper was here in Sydney and got to go to his hotel room, get to meet the famous John Piper, the pastor, and I remember, I, you know, a little bit in awe, I read a lot of his books, and, and uh, I, I said to John, um, hey, you're in Australia, um, you know, have, have you gone to the beach? We're really, we have nice beaches, have you gone to Bondi, or, you know, any of the, uh, Beat Manly, or, and, and, <laughs> and uh, John Piper said to me, oh, I, don't, I don't go to the beach, and I'm like, you don't go to the beach in Australia, you just, just no, he goes, no, I, I just don't go to the beach, I don't go to the beach, and I go, Oh, why? And he goes, um, you know, it's because for him to go to the beach and to see a lot of scantily dressed women is just not helpful for his Christian life. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> um, but then that doesn't surprise you if you know John Piper. You may know that he, he doesn't own a TV, right? He, he just doesn't own a TV. It's because um, for him, the TV can be a distraction. Now, it's not that he doesn't ever watch TV. He'll go to a friend's place and they might watch a footy game or whatever, but for him and his family, they, they don't sit around and watch TV. Um, they don't have a TV in his house as he's raised his children. Um, because again, for him, that's something that can get in the way of, you know, of, it's a distraction. Now, I'm not saying let's all be like John Piper, never go to the beach, don't own a TV, but do you see, he's really taking this seriously. 
he doesn't avoid the he doesn't just avoid the beach, which may be a cause for sin and temptation. He doesn't have a TV, which may and he's not saying the TVs are bad. He's just saying it's a distraction. Do you see what I mean? So here's an obvious application: is, is if there's sin in your life, you throw it off, repent of it. But what is the less obvious application for, for us? It's probably the majority of us. We know what to do with sin. But what are the good things in our lives that may also hinder our race? See, the things that actually give us pleasure and comfort, and, and the Bible says receive them as blessings and give thanks. Yet, actually, they hold us back. I mean, it's like the rich young ruler that... He, the rich young ruler had a chance to follow Jesus to become a disciple of Jesus with God in human flesh. And he couldn't do it. He gave it up. Why? Because of a good thing, which is his wealth. You don't want to be like that, do you? So I wonder how you're going to apply this one. Let me give you um, something that is worth trying. It's, it's not very popular nowadays, but it's something that we ought to consider. It's a discipline of fasting. Now, you know what a fast is? A fast is not going off food or other things forever. It's just a temporary um, with, withdrawal of something good. Food is good, but you can also fast from you know, other things like gaming or, or, or screens or alcohol or eating out or, or spending money buying clothes or, or fasting from a hobby. Um, I was rebuked this week as I was preparing this and I realized I need to take a break from social media. It's just become a little bit too automatic consuming. You know, I just on my phone, on my computer, I'm just checking Facebook and you know, I thought, no, that's it. I need to fast from social media for a time. Now, again, we're not saying these are bad things necessarily, but a fast reminds you, a discipline, that even good things can so easily entangle and hinder you. And actually, when you fast from them, you realize, oh, I actually feel a little bit liberated. It's only been like a day and a half since I've stopped social media, and I'm planning to do it for a while, but it actually is quite liberating. I'm not constantly thinking, what's out there? What news am I missing? Who's doing what? And what comments are they leaving on my page? It's just like, no. Right? It helps us to be not enslaved and entangled by these things. So is that something you might want to apply today? Right? Take some good thing that you feel like is kind of crowded into your life so much and just go without for a season. Okay, so that's the first house of throwing off. The second how is to fix our eyes on Jesus. Now, because um, verses 2 and 3, it's going to develop this into a big point. I'm just going to make it a separate point there. So, point number two, look at Jesus. Right? You see it says, Let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. Verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Um, so it's interesting, isn't it? It's just talked about a cloud of witnesses. But even with the cloud of witnesses, the writer doesn't tell us to primarily look at them. It's saying, no, 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 look at Jesus. And of course, we look at Jesus because Jesus is greater than Noah and Abraham and Rahab and all of those guys. But more than that, it's saying Jesus is pioneer and perfecter. When it comes to faith, he's the pioneer and perfecter. Now, I want to show you a picture in 1968. This was the first VR virtual reality headset developed by Ivan Sutherland and his team. It's pioneering because it paved the way for this, this tech. Right, wearable VR, but you can see it's clunky, it's, it's basically almost immovable. But then, of course, this week, what was announced? Anyone know? Apple Vision Pro. Now, did Apple invent 
the VR? No, it didn't. But like Apple does so well, it takes an idea and it makes it better. Now, I won't kind of say perfects it. I'm sure they'll have lots of versions of it. But it's definitely taken the idea and made it better. So usually what happens in life is someone pioneers, someone else perfects. When it comes to faith, you see, Jesus did both. He both pioneered and not just developed and made it better, he perfected it. Right? And that's why we've got to fix our eyes on him. Now, how did Jesus both pioneer and perfect faith? Well, you look at his life. Back to the passage. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, when we think of crucifixion, the cross, we mostly think of the pain, don't we? Like, who wants to have their nails, the nails driven through their wrists and their feet, and, you know, it's horrible. It's a horribly painful way to die. But you know what? When the ancients thought about it, they mostly thought of, I mean, it's not like they didn't think of the pain, but they mostly thought of the shame, yeah? Because they were an honor shame culture. So there you are hanging naked, suspended between heaven and earth, exposed to the elements, to the passers-by, to animals. The disgrace and the shame was terrible, was worse, arguably, for them than the pain. It says here that Jesus endured all of that, endured the cross. In fact, the word endure is kind of literally the word he stayed on. He remained on the cross. And then it's not just the pain. Look what he did with the shame. He, it says that he scorned or he despised its shame. That's really interesting. I don't even thought about that. You know the word scorn, despise? They're usually words that we use to shame someone, right? If you scorn someone, despise someone, you're shaming them. And so the writer of Hebrews is using shaming words about shame. Jesus not only endured the shame of the cross, he went as far as to make fun of the shame of the cross. Pretty cool, huh? And why did he do all that? Endure the cross, stay on the cross, shaming is shame. Well, because of the joy that is to come. Because of the joy of you being saved. He stayed on the cross in the pain and the shame, because your sins and my sins could be forgiven. We could be adopted as his children. All of that kept him going. By the way, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, can I just say, Jesus did this for you. Because he loved you in advance. So what will you do? Will you at least investigate? Will you come and find out more? Or maybe today you may want to follow him as Lord and put your faith in him. But also not just the joy of saving you and me. That's why he kept him on the cross. It's also, of course, the glory to come. He says he was raised, he's exalted to sit at the right hand of God. See, for the promise of joy and glory, Jesus endured, stayed on the cross. It's pain, it's shame. Now, what's that called? What enables someone to stay there in the midst of pain and shame for the future joy and glory that he could see? That's called faith, isn't it? That's called faith. And that's how you know Jesus pioneered and perfected it. He had the faith to do that. Which is why, verse 3, Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Remember, this is written to us who are feeling weary, who are feeling tired. Now, the word consider there 
means literally to give careful thought to. Not just, oh, I considered it, made a decision. Not just a passing thought, but it's actually, the idea is to take time to think, to study, to immerse. Um, which, along with verse 2, fix your eyes, right? Don't take your attention off Jesus. That's what it's saying. Now, between Michael Jordan and LeBron James, sorry, I know, basketball, okay, sorry. Um, the greatest player between Michael Jordan and LeBron James was who? Anyone know? Kobe Bryant. Kobe Bryant, okay, Black Mamba, all right? Um, the reason, and when Kobe came on the scene, um, people noticed he is so much like Michael Jordan, right? And, and he became great. Maybe not quite as great as MJ, but actually almost there. Um, and he, he was like MJ, Michael Jordan, not just because of his greatness, but his game. And the reason why he was like Michael Jordan is this. Kobe studied Michael Jordan. When he was growing up, Michael Jordan was his hero. And so he found out everything there was to know about MJ. Um, he modeled himself on um, Michael Jordan's competitiveness. He modeled himself on Michael Jordan's drive. And he even practiced Michael Jordan's signature moves. All right? He made Michael Jordan his obsession and he copied him. That's what consider means here. That's what consider means here. When you consider Jesus. See, the Christian life is relationship with Jesus as Lord. But it's so easy to lose him as the center of our lives, right? And when you lose Jesus as the center of your life, I'll tell you what. It both causes your weariness, it's part of the reason why we get weary and tired when he's no longer in the center, but it can also be a result of your weariness, right? It's both a cause and effect of weariness, which means getting Jesus in the center is so important, right? So let me ask you, if you're a follower of Jesus, do you, do you see everything in Christ and do you see Christ in everything? Now think about that phrase. Do you see everything in Christ? All of your life makes sense in Jesus. And do you see Christ in everything? Every part of your life has Jesus in it. Is that you? Is Jesus the motivation and the reason you do everything in life? The reason you study, the reason you work, the reason you parent, the reason you pray, the reason you serve, the reason you enjoy, the reason you endure. How do we do that? If, if you're a little bit off-center now, if you haven't, Jesus kind of lost that pride of place, and you, how do you, well, let me suggest to you two things you need. You need both word and worship. You got that? You need both word and worship, and you need both. You need the word, that is the word of God, the Bible. You see, there's nothing better to get Jesus back in the center of your life when you're so immersed in, in the Bible, because the whole Bible and the way we teach it as Swek, you'll know. The whole Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, Genesis, and Revelation is one story about Jesus. And the more that you immerse yourself in that, the more that you know how it all points to Jesus, how it all coheres in Jesus, that really fills your mind. That really helps to bring him back in the center. So it's word. But then it's also worship because it's not just your minds that need to be filled, your hearts need to be delighting in Jesus, right? You need to be tasting the worth and the goodness of Jesus. Right? It's like I can describe to you what honey tastes like, and if you've never tasted honey, you're not going to really know until you try honey, yeah? 
You need to not just know intellectually through the word, you need to revel in it, taste him through worship. And even when you're in pain, worship looks like coming to him on your knees and pouring out your pain before him in prayer. Now, we all need word and worship, but I think at different times in my life, I need one more than the other because it's a bit of a, an adjustment. I wonder today, if you want to apply this, what is it for you? Is it that the word, you need to just immerse yourself in the Bible more? Or is it that it's kind of all been intellectual recently and you just need to spend more time in worship? You have a think about that. All right, final point. Um, the writer of Hebrews is going to drop the metaphor of running um, and then he's going to give you a really interesting perspective on enduring and persevering. And it's all under the idea of discipline, right? So you see there in verse 7, right? Endure hardship as discipline. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear discipline and hardship, I can easily misunderstand it. Because here's the thing. For most of us, discipline is entirely a negative thing, right? Like how many of you are like, oh, discipline, my experience of discipline, great. No, it's actually mostly negative because it's mostly in response to your mistakes. It's more about punishment. And hey, let's admit it, even if you have great parents like me, they get it wrong as well, right? Discipline can be done poorly. And then you link that to suffering and hardship and, and discipline. Sometimes you just think, oh, is this saying that suffering comes from God to discipline me for something I did wrong? Is, is that what it's saying? Some people really think that. Anytime something happens to you that's bad, God is punishing you. Is that what it's saying? Well, no, I think if that's the case, we'd be misunderstanding the use of the word discipline here. Um, even in the context of Hebrews, uh, remember the, the Christians he's writing to, the hardship they've had to endure was actually outside of themselves. It's particularly persecution for being Christians. It's not hardship because they've been punished for sin. In fact, if you see it rightly, in some ways, the hardship they face, right, and the discipline from that will actually help them not to fall into sin. It's not from sin, it's to help them in their resistance of sin, because for them, sin would actually be to, to give up on Jesus, all right? And it's because discipline here has really the idea of training, right? That's important to remember. When you read Hebrews 12, discipline here means a positive thing. It means training. Um, through their hardship, God is training them. He's, he's helping their faith muscles grow so that they can get stronger, they can endure better, they can keep running. And why does God do this for them, for us? Well, it's because, again, He's a good Father, right? You see that in the passage. And I'm just going to read out the next little section. And, um, we read it before, but I think it speaks for itself. So let's have a look again. Verse 5. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you're not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you're not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we've all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in His holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. 
I don't know if you watched the film King Richard. It's based on, of course, uh, Richard Williams, who is the father of uh, Venus and Serena Williams. Um, and if you know the story, well, he, his plan it was to get his girls out of poverty and trouble uh, by helping them become the best tennis players in the world. And what did that involve? From a very young age, 5 a.m., they get up to train. Rain, hail, and shine. Before and after school. In fact, he said it's better training in the rain because the balls are heavier and you have to get down lower. Um, he actually stopped them from turning professional early, even though they, you know, a lot of people wanted them. Because why? He wanted them to finish their education, to finish high school. And he did all of this because he loved them. Right? He kept them away from drugs. He kept them away from delinquency, from teenage pregnancy, all the other things that happen. People born in the same place uh, grew up like them. Right? His daughters avoided. Now, was it hard? Yes, very hard. It was a bit crazy as well. He is a bit crazy. But it's because he loved them. Now, there's a running joke in my household, in the co-household, um, from the time our kids were young. We give them restrictions on, you know, when they can look, use their devices, when they can play computer games. And, you know, throughout the years, they've often come back home and say, Mom and Dad, this is so unfair. Why can't we play games or why do we have restrictions? Because none of my friends have restrictions. They can play whenever they want for how long they want. And our response, a running joke, we always say to our kids, it's because their parents don't love them very much. <laughs> I mean, they know it's a joke. Except one of them told their friend that. <laughs> it's because your parents don't love you very much. Anyway. But, I mean, you get the point, right? You get the point. It's because we love them. So let me ask you, what, when bad things happen to you, when hard tough times, and some of you have gone through some really tough times recently, I know that. What is the dialogue that goes in your head, or what is the narrative? What is the reason? What are you asking in your head? Usually, when you're going through tough times, you, you say to God, even if you don't say it out loud, this is what you're thinking, you're saying, God, if you loved me, this wouldn't happen to me. Or why is this happening to God? I thought you loved me. Now today, it's not easy, but I, I hope you can change that narrative. Right? The hard times aren't going, to go, you know, aren't going to go away necessarily. But instead of thinking, hard times are here, I'm suffering. If you love me, God, why is this happening to you? Maybe change it to, because God here is saying, because I love you. That's why you're going through this. Yeah? Change that narrative. Because God loves you, because he's treating you as children, that's why you're going through this. Pastor Tim Keller said, if we knew what God knows, we would ask for exactly what God gives us. And I think it's particularly thinking about the hard times. If we knew what God knows... If we knew completely, infinitely, perfectly what God knows about you, your future, your circumstances, because He created you, then you would ask for the very things He gives you, even though they're hard, because He knows what's best. See, painful as it is, verse 11 says, God has a goal in mind through all of this. He, he wants to create in us. He wants us to share in His holiness. And he wants us to produce a harvest of righteousness and peace. It's like they say that Michelangelo, the artist, would see a block of marble and in his mind he would have David. You know the famous statue that he cut? 
He can see Marvel, he, he, he sees Marvel, but he can see David. Well, God sees you. And he uses hardship to create, to chip away, and perfect that beautiful and righteous life that brings you and I peace and joy and true satisfaction. He loves us. It's for our good. Like I look at my own life. And let me just confess to you, so many of my sins have to do with pride. The sin of pride. And it's not just when I think I'm better than others. It's not just when I boast or brag, I do that. But even when I'm jealous or envious of others, or when I'm harsh and unkind in my thoughts and my words, when I'm impatient and irritable, it's pride. It's all pride. Now think, how is God going to make me like Jesus? Humble, gentle, lowly Jesus. How is God going to humble me? You know the answer, right? I know it. It's going to be through hardship. It's going to be through suffering. He will bring me to my knees so that I see myself as I really am and learn to rely on Him alone. Now, I wish it was the case that He's done all of that already. He's done a bit of that, but there is so much more pride in me. So much more for him to do. And even as I say it, I dread it. Because I know what that means. But you know what? I remember that he's doing it because he loves me. And maybe you can remind me next time I go through a hard time. What about you? Maybe it's not pride. Maybe it's something else. How is God going to bring you to be more like Jesus? So, if you're a weary Christian, hear the word of the Father who loves you. And we'll finish with this. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. So, if you're weary, keep running. Don't stop running. Fix your eyes on Jesus and endure as God's dearly loved children. Let's sing. Let me pray. Get the band up. Lord Jesus, even as we struggle with some of the difficulty of trusting you to guide us through hard times, we ask that as your word has challenged us today, help us run. Help us not to stop. Help us to have Jesus back in the center and help us endure knowing that you love us. And you're working for our good, our joy, and your glory. And I pray for anyone who really needs to hear this word. We pray that this won't just be a word that we go away and forget about. We pray that this would be a word that we apply. For Jesus' sake, amen.